0: Good morning everybody, enjoying your long weekend, very long, it's good to be with you I uh, have uh, formerly been the senior pastor at Hamilton Central Baptist, I preached here a few times in earlier days, been a while though since I've been here, I've been gone, come back, now I live in Raglan and um, There are two kinds of people that live in the Waikato. Did you know that? Two kinds. Those that live in Raglan and those who want to live in Raglan. Yeah, there are, really. And uh, it's just uh, wonderful to be able to share some fellowship with you and to open the Word of God together. Um, Before I do that, though, um, there is a certain protocol, social protocol uh, that... Grandparents know all about. You're not allowed to skite about your children, right? But you are about your grandchildren. So here I go. First slide. It's coming. There they are. There you go. Eleven. Eleven of them. All born in eight years. Yes, they were. In 2016, three of them in one year. Grandchildren are a reward to grandparents for not killing your kids. Yep. How many grandparents attest to that? (laughs) (laughs) And they are delightful, aren't they? I mean, you'd want to kind of hug them and kiss all of them, wouldn't you? Well, I would. Eight of them live, two lots of four live, they're all mixed up there, but... Two lots of four live in spitting distance from my house in Raglan. Their fathers and their mothers are, are very keen surfers, that's why they live in Raglan. And, um, and the oldest one there with the, with the little guy on, the, on her lap, she's just got up on her own at Manu Bay, which is the main surf break. Very proud of her, she's just 10 years of age. So there you go. How many of you are enjoying grandparenting these days? Oh, look at you, look at this. Wow, that's a high percentage. How many of you got them kind of close? You can squeeze them and hug them and do all that kind of good stuff. It's Nice, isn't it? Well, today we're going to continue in the series that uh, has uh, been underway here for about five weeks, the book of Esther. And uh, it's a seven-part series entitled God at Work. And uh, God at work when we can't see it, His work, in the grey, through the injustice, last week in the moment of decision, this week to judge the abuser, I think I drew the short straw to be honest, um, to protect next week, to protect the vulnerable and thereafter to honour the faithful. So next slide, please. Um, so the text um, is, uh, I guess, by and large, well known to you. If you've been coming to the series, and uh, many of you will have been reading your Bibles over the many years and familiar with the story. You can certainly go online because all of the uh, sermons are there. But essentially, as you know, there are four main characters in the book of Esther. The Xerxes the king, um, and he is the king over a huge realm with 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. And I actually thought I'd look that up and see what, kind of, what that might look like. I have a, I've got a couple of these here on the front if you want this. This is the map of the area uh, that he was the king over. It's a huge chunk of the known world at the time, the Persian Empire, it's called. It was, in fact, the most powerful ancient empire that spanned three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. And as I said, 127 provinces, 2.9, nearly 3 million square miles of territory, geography in in his realm, or 7.5 million square kilometers. Uh, he probably, and uh, most theologians and historians would agree, he probably presided over a third of the world's population at the time. It could even be nearer a half. So it's a phenomenal kingdom. And some would say it was, it's been the, the most powerful empire of all time. So you want to talk about a superpower, and you know, there's this contest between these days between America and China. Probably pales into t- s- insignificance compared to the Persian Empire. Probably. Today, the distance between New Delhi and India, because it stretched from India right through to Ethiopia, the distance, if you want to fly it, uh, takes seven and a half hours and is four, th- four and a half thousand kilometres. Well, the, from the top of the North Island in New Zealand to the bottom of the South Island is only fourteen hundred kilometres. So this is three and a half times the size. So she's—it's—it's a, it's a big domain. And as I say, if you want like to have the copy of this, then it's available there. So he's—that's Xerxes, and then there's Haman. He's a—he's a jealous dude, man, isn't he? Wow, jealousy—it screws you up, doesn't it? When jealousy gets a hold of your heart, this man is so screwed up. He wants to kill. He wants to murder. That's what jealousy's done to him. Jealousy does horrible things to people. And Christians can be jealous. Christian leaders can be jealous of other Christian leaders. Christian leaders can be jealous of other Christian leaders' ministries. Truly, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I know what I'm talking about. You've got to, you got, Christian people can be jealous of their siblings who are doing better than, or ostensibly better in the world than they are, or whatever it may be. I mean, Christian parents, sometimes I've even come across are jealous of their kids who are doing better than they do. It's all this stuff goes on. It's underneath. You can't see it, but it's jealousy hurts. Jealousy quickly goes toxic. And then you want to go to its extreme. In Haman's case, he wanted to kill Mordecai, get rid of this man, so jealous. He's, but he nonetheless has the highest position, essentially the prime minister of this huge realm, under second in charge next to Xerxes. Then there's Mordecai, lovely man, great man of God, used by God, Esther's adopted father, a Jew, a refugee of Babylonia, and uh, just a man who is seeking to please God in every way, in a very hostile environment. Very hostile. We can learn a lot from what. It, in fact, I loved. I, I'm grateful that I was given a text. Because I would have gone with another subject if I was been given any subject. I could. But I was grateful because it reminded me just again that I, I, if I want to be like, you know, I mean, all of us want to be like some Bible characters, right? I, it would be good to be like Mordecai. There'd be a good guy to be like. You know, that's a good jealousy. Be like Mordecai. How he navigated life pleasing to God in a very hostile context. And then, of course, beautiful Esther, who became Xerxes' wife, at least in part because she was the most beautiful woman in the in the harem, uh, and um, was certainly also clearly being used by God. You know, it's an interesting thing about Esther, the book of Esther. God's name, or the Holy Spirit, is never mentioned. It's really interesting to me. The word God is never mentioned in in Esther, yet his fingerprints are over the entire book. This is really one of these... Interesting little fun facts of the Bible. So that's a little bit of... That's, those, those are your main characters. So let's... I'm going to read to you um, actually not all of the, I'm, I, my, the, the, the two chapters that I'm uh, being asked to read. are chapter 6 and 7. I'm just going to very quickly let you know what chapter 6 looks like. The king can't sleep. Xerxes can't sleep one night. And he starts to think about life. And he calls for the attendant... Uh, to uh, read to him the recent history, only to discover, as the attendant reads the recent history, that Mordecai had spared the king's life. So here Mordecai had spared Xerxes' life. There was a murder murder plot on Xerxes' life. And nothing had been done, nothing had been done to honour Mordecai for this great deed that he had done. And so he, he, he suddenly becomes aware of this as the history is read to him in chapter 6. Haman is, happens to be in the, um, in the forecourt, uh, and uh, he's uh, called in, and Xerxes says to him, what would you do to honor somebody? Not naming who he wants to honor, because it's time to rectify the past. And Haman, said, thinking that it's, of course, him, he's the prime minister, he thinks, oh, he wants to honor me. How cool is this? Get the horse, get the best stallions in, get the robe, get the signet ring, and uh, parade him through town. So he says, that's a good idea. Let's do it. He says, get Mordecai. <laughs> put him on the stallion, ride him through town, put the royal robe on him and put him through... <laughs> so Haman, I mean, he's under orders. He does exactly what he's told to do, but he is fuming. Can you imagine it? You want to kill this man and now he's on the horse and you are parading him through town. Seriously. Now his anger is steaming. I mean, I reckon if you were there, you could see the smoke coming out of his ears. What do you? Don't you think? It's highly likely. I mean, he... Is steaming. And so let's pick it up in chapter 7. And it reads like this it comes up on the screen. Here it is. Next slide. Do you think God will judge the abuser? got stuck. Let me just grab this water here. It's coming. Say to the person say say the per- say to the person beside you, you are one wonderful looking human being. Go ahead, go and say that. They know that already. <laughs> oh, you know, we Christians, we, we show up real nice, don't we, on Sundays? Oh, we show up so good. We're the nicest people on the planet. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. On the second occasion, while they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, Tell me what you want, Queen Esther. What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it's half the kingdom. So she's putting on a banquet. And uh, it's, uh, the king is there. Haman will be there. Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor with the king. So again, Queen Esther married to Xerxes. She's putting on the banquet. And if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and alienate us. And alienate us. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet. For that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. Next. Who would do such a thing, King Xerxes demanded. You can almost sense his outrage. Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? Esther replied, this wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. Haman grew pale with fright. I mean, just as well he's got a strong heart because he might have had a heart attack otherwise. This wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. Haman grew pale with fright before the king and the queen. Then the king jumped to his feet in a rage and went out into the palace garden. Just taking stock. Good idea when you're angry. Take a few puffs of good fresh air. Haman, however, stayed behind to plead for his life with Queen Esther. For he knew that the king intended to kill him. In despair, he fell. Note this. In despair, he fell on the couch, not on the queen, on the couch where Esther was reclining, just as the king was returning from the palace garden. Next slide. Then the king exclaimed, because he just glanced at this little carry-on down here, will he even assault the queen right here in the palace before my very own eyes? And as soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, signaling his doom. They knew exactly what that meant. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, Haman has set up a sharpened pole. You'll read that at the end of chapter 5. Haman has set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall in his own courtyard. He intended to use it to impale Mordecai, the man who saved the king from assassination." Then impale Haman on it, the king ordered. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Let us pray. Lord, your word... is powerful and it's truth. We thank you that you yourself said, Lord Jesus, that the truth can set us free. And so may these few moments we spend together diving into this little passage that you'll help us to see truth, your truth. May it set us free. May it uh, help us to live lives, Lord, more pleasing to you in every respect. So Lord, I just submit myself and ask that you will use these words today to your glory and praise. Amen. So as I said, I think I drew the short straw. God will judge the abuser. So I need to talk about the work of god as judge as judge god brought judgment upon haman so even a scant knowledge of the bible tells us that god's that god does judge and he does judge disobedience unfaithfulness And unrighteousness. Therefore, yes, he will judge the abuser. Absolutely. And it kind of works like this. God is... There's these two tensions. Well, there's a lot of tensions in Scripture. Truth is always in tension. But God is holy, and we've sung about that. And God is love. And from God's holiness comes his... And I'll explain this a little bit more in a moment, comes his justice. Which is basically what the, the 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 record of scripture is is the the principles, the concepts, the commands that he's asking his people to live up to. It's kind of like the benchmark. This is this is the benchmark that he's asking the Old Testament people of God, the Israelites, to live up to, and then Jesus comes along and he asks us to live up to this benchmark. Sure, reinterpreted by Jesus, but nonetheless still a benchmark. And if we don't, and deliberately don't, and and I need to stress deliberately don't, then judgment will come. God's judgment will come. So this is exactly, brothers and sisters, what we see in the opening account of the Bible. It's incredible. Paradise lost is God's judgment. Paradise lost in chapter 3 of Genesis is God's judgment. It's tragic, unbelievably tragic. Um... If you're interested, let me read you a paragraph that's a theological comment, commentary or a theological statement that a theologian or theologians write about this subject. Let me read that to you if you're interested in that, just very quickly. The moral righteousness of God is revealed in his laws. The moral righteousness of God is revealed in his laws and expressed in his judicial acts god god's commands and judgments meet perfect standards of justice and his apportioning of punishments and rewards is also perfectly just perfectly just god's justice is impartial special praise is his for vindicating the penitent or the repentant, and the needy who have no human champions. Ultimately, all God's ways will be seen as just and equitable. All his ways. Now this concept of God as judge, to be frank, is not an easy idea for us. Uh, especially in a day that emphasizes, and, and that's the kind of day we do live in, his love and mercy and grace. And we should emphasize it, by the way. It's, 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 it's right that we should. To think of God as a presiding judge is hard. It kind of smacks up against our kind of sensibilities. As a presiding judge, you know, they, judges issue penalties and punishments, and they condemn people to a life separated from normal life. It's a tough pill to swallow, frankly. Not to say anything about the concept of hell. It's a tough pill to swallow. Especially in a day where people are so hooked into happiness psychology and comfort and don't disturb my comfort, and don't disturb my happiness, and da-da-da, you know it. It's hard. I confess it's hard for me. But the Bible is the Bible, and the truth is the truth, and God is holy. And out of his holiness comes this aspect of his ministry, his work. So how, let me, what I've done is, come at this with a phrase. It's 10 words in Genesis that have helped me hugely over the years to kind of try and understand God as judge. It's these famous words. Next slide, please. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Now, talk to me. Where do we find that phrase? What's the context? Anyone remember? It's Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's wickedness in the town, city. And Abraham's nephew's there, Lot. So this is early on in. Abraham's called in Genesis 15. So it's early on in Abraham's ministry, if you wish, his call. And uh, there's a, this hideous sin going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. Particularly sexual perversion of unbelievable kinds. And God wants to wipe it out, his judgment. He can't handle it any longer. He wants to wipe Sodom and Gomorrah out. This is a staggering passage to me. And Abraham bargains with God. Get this. Man, no wonder he's the father of the faith. He, 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 was, he had enough gumption to bargain with God, to plead with God. And he says to God, where did he start? At what number of righteous people? If there are X number of righteous people, will you save it? What was the first number? Fifty. If there are 50, God, will you save it? He intercedes. Lots in, and his wife and family are in, the, are in Sodom and Gomorrah because Abraham had sent them there. 50. God says, yes, I will. Next number, 40. Yes, I will. 30. Yes, I will. 20. Yes, I will. 10. No deal. Abraham gets Lot and his wife out of town and his family and he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, his justice. And then we read, as in the midst of this passage, we read this phrase, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Yes is the answer. It's a rhetorical question. Yes, of course he will do right. We can be assured that the judgment of God, that the judgment seat of Christ, he will do right. Why? Because his just judgment is based on his justice and it will be fair and equitable. It will be right. Friends, I reckon there are going to be some real surprises in heaven. How many would agree? We think we've got it sorted. We think that we know who's going to be in heaven and who's in and who's out. I want to tell you, I don't think we've got any idea. We don't have any idea of... What God sees, we cannot see the heart of man, of women, of children, of abused people, of prisoners, of the disenfranchised, the marginalized marginalized and the poor. We do not see their hearts, but God does. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Yes, He will. It's a huge reassurance to me that all will be right in the end. Why? Because it's in His hands. Not mine. Not yours. Conservative evangelical brothers and sisters, we need to be so, and I'm one of you, we need to be so careful that we do not presume to be in God's place and judge this person and that person and the next person, including hardened prisoners. who have done wrong. They're in prison because they've done wrong. You now, most prisoners, when it comes to Mother's Day, write a card to Mother. Thousands of cards sent from prisons in New Zealand. When it comes to Father's Day, next to no cards. When they study prisoners, they realise that most of them have a learning disability. It was never picked up. God knows that. God is kind. God is gracious. I think we're going to get some big surprises on the other side. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So, in this very brief first half of my talk, we've established that an important part of God's work is that he judges. What I'd like to do now is have a little deeper look into this aspect of his work and conclude with what this may mean for us today. I've already said, next slide please. God's judgment is based upon his justice, his righteousness. It's entirely okay to interchange the word justice and righteousness, certainly in the New Testament and for most of the old. And I've mentioned earlier, God has established this benchmark. It's his justice of righteousness. Justice and righteousness, interchangeable ideas, cousin ideas, even interchangeable words. Righteousness, what is right, what is holy, what is just, that's what it means. So, next slide. On that basis, God's justice is impartial. Next click. God's justice is impartial. It is not prejudicial. It does not even have a hint of favoritism. Not even a hint. That's why I think there are going to be some surprises in heaven. Because I think over the centuries, some Christians have thought they are favored ones. Well, God's judgment has no Favoritism, it's impartial. And in 1 Peter 1:17, it bears this out. it says, "And remember that the heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. No favorites. Pastor, hear your own words. No favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear. That's good fear. There's good fear and bad fear. Here's good fear. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time as foreigners in the land. This justice is Next slide, next two slides, next click, two clicks. Inescapable and infallible. This incredibly powerful passage in Romans chapter 2 reminds us that God will never make a mistake. And that the judge of all the earth will do right at the end of time. His judgment, his justice is impartial, it's inescapable, and it's infallible. So this is chapter two of the opening verses, you may think you can condemn such people of Romans chapter one. Again, a description of hideous sin. So he's talking to the church. He's talking to Christian people. You may think you can condemn such people. But you are just as bad. And you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. And I'm thinking, my God, easy, easy i never intended that. He's up. But he knows our hearts. For you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God in his justice this is Romans chapter 2 and we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things since you judge others for doing these things you why do you think you can avoid god's judgment when you do the same things don't you see how wonderfully kind so this is a wonderful balance isn't it god's holiness has just been expressed very strongly in these first two verses and then god's love this is the tension God's love and grace and mercy follows. And he says, don't you see, don't you see how wonderful, kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Yes, he is. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended? Get this, this is the kicker. Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Hallelujah. That's good, isn't it? In this tension between God's justice and judgment and his love and mercy and grace, he hangs, you could almost feel the tension, you can see that he leans this way, Please, I'll I'll, I'll wait a little longer so that you can turn, repent. And for us Christians, what he's really saying is, check your heart. Because most of us are not doing what Romans 1 is, what's going on in Romans 1, or in Sodom and Gomorrah. I hope not. But we've got stuff going on in our hearts. Secret sins. So his justice is impartial, inescapable, inescapable, infallible, and therefore his judgments are too. Because his judgments flow from his justice. All right, finally, a couple of points. I'm not going to read the text, but next slide, please. God reveals secrets, which is a good reminder for us Christians, I think. God knows everything. He's omniscient. God knows everything. He knows my heart and He knows yours. And He will, the Bible says, reveal it at the end of time. It just helps me. What about you, Cassandra? Does it help you to keep short accounts? Very short accounts. <laughs> it just helps keep short accounts because He knows. He knows. Modern day Western Christianity's got a little bit flabby here. We're kind of a little soft on our on our we've got soft on ourselves. I, I hear too many Christians my age, the boomers, my kids' age, the millennials. I just hear some some conversation I, I think we need we need to be concerned about a little bit. We're just there's a little bit of ethical shabbiness going on, a little bit of soft, a little bit soft towards. Sit in my heart, not, not my neighbor's heart, not your heart or, my, or that person's heart, my heart. I think there are some things that are kind of becoming acceptable that I don't know that God is that pleased with. In our overemphasis on grace, am I making sense? Am I talking to myself? Someone, say something. God knows. And then, of course, we know that Christians will be judged at the end of the age. Uh, Matthew 25, that famous passage of the sheep and the goats. We will be judged. And I think the companion, perhaps the companion text for us today is Esther 6, the companion text to Esther 6 and 7 is this one. Matthew 25, 31, 46 the sheep and the goats. It's just a great reminder of what God gives an insight into. God's, if you wish, benchmark. So what might this mean for us? Finally. Last last slide. What might this mean for us today? Tomorrow morning, Wednesday afternoon, Saturday night. Three things that I've just Quickly identify three things. Put them all up, please. Click, click, click. Yep, we need to clean up our own life. I've talked about that. Keep short accounts. Catholic community do some things really well, and one of them is confession. Confess your sins. It's the Protestant tradition isn't strong in that at all. But it was in Jesus' day. And when James wrote what he wrote in, in James chapter 5, it was definitely present. People confess their sins one to another. It was part of every it was kind of, not every day, but it was it was common. Confess your sins. You know. I know it's partly a function of getting older, but it isn't only that. It's really part of our spiritual disciplines as as Protestant Christians is to sit quietly and ask, pray the prayer that David prayed. Search me, O God, and know my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me. Because sometimes we don't even know, you know? Am Am I, is that right? We don't even quite know. Something's not quite right in there. We don't always quite know. We need a revelation. We need God to, in the quiet, to speak. Show us. I can't tell you how often God has put his finger on something. Vink, look at this. Look at this. Look at this. Sort that out like a loving father does. I think we should seek the kingdom of God first and six, Matthew six thirty-three: Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his or justice or justice same word in the Greek Seek first the kingdom of God and his that's what I think we should be about and one way in which we could do that is to become a bold advocate for the poor and the marginalised and the vulnerable and get involved. And I heard your brothers talking about that just a little bit before and I think that's something I know this church wants to do as churches up and down the land want to do and it's a good thing to do. My goodness, don't we have so many needs all around us? Um... I've been, you know, I'm a grandfather, I've lived in New Zealand for a long time. I've never known in my lifetime, friends, a housing crisis like we have at the moment. Never. And I've been in the property market a long, long time as a trader. And who are the people who suffer the most in a housing crisis like we have in New Zealand? The poor. The marginalized. The dispossessed. I I don't know how to fix it. But I'm a blogger these days and one of the things I blogged recently was to pastors. I blog to 500 pastors every week and I say one of the things we could do is turn some of our car park space into housing. We could. Imagine 3,000 churches in New Zealand who who take a wee corner off their car park and put some housing, social housing there. How awesome would that be? And we walk, we have to walk a little further to the front door. Whatever it might be. But I think we should exercise our collective thinking and resources. What can we do? And so it's appropriate for us to to come to the communion table as we close off the service. Because the cross of Christ was an unbelievable act of God's. Justice and judgment, wasn't it? On on the devil. He judged the devil and sin, the problem of sin. And this table reminds us that because he did that, we can come and we can find, we can have our sins forgiven and we can reconnect to his fatherhood and to his family. No longer strangers, but adopted sons and daughters. How wonderful is this? So as we share in these concluding moments, let's reflect on that. Let let God speak by his Holy Spirit for a few moments. On the night in which our Lord was betrayed, he he simply took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that I give to you. Eat this, and every time you do, remember me. And in the same way, he took a cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you, for the forgiveness of all sin. Drink this and every time you do, remember me. Well, as is the custom here, please come on up and help yourselves.